You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. Welcome to the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, this is episode number 116. Today we're going to be talking about The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, my name is uh, Danny Anderson. I'm an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And I'm joined by uh, two other Christian humanists. Uh, today we have Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English, also at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, how are you? I'm doing great this morning, Danny. Great. Uh, and Michael Farmer. Uh, assistant professor of English at Crown College in somewhere in Minnesota. Saint Bonifacius. Saint Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how you doing? I'm pretty good. Danny, how are you good. doing? That's the that's the question. I am rolling through the mud and the blood and the beer. Uh, thank you, uh, John Cash. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so today, uh, before we begin, I think we have a couple of emails. Michael, do you want to take that? Yeah, we got an email from Todd Pedler. Uh, he says he was able to catch our newest, which is, of course, no longer our newest, the Mino broadcast, which I've been looking forward to since the moment you posted the fair warning message a couple weeks ago. Very enjoyable and thought-provoking as I come to respect, expect. We regularly teach Plato in our first-year common course, Paideia, I, su- I suppose that's pronounced, though it's almost always the apology in sections of the Republic. Mino was one that I and a couple others had suggested a couple years ago when our theme for the semester was going to be, what is education for? Alas, it didn't make the final cut. Todd, you're just like Socrates. The citizens of Athens will never understand you. (laughs) I appreciated Danny's remarks concerning the fanatical pressure to be able to measure outcomes quantitatively and to assess the results of our teaching. Few things coming down the pike in higher or secondary and elementary education disturb me more than what I jokingly call assessmentitis in hallway conversations with my colleagues. I don't think a more damaging disease could be invented. (laughs) <laughs> Since he sent this episode last week, or this email last week, all I can think about is assessmentitis, because uh, my school too suffers from so, from it. A couple this with the ill-founded notion Nathan went on to describe that all children have identical intellectual faculties or potential, and you have the educational mess we have today. A high school education becomes a pro forma entry ticket to college, and a BA becomes a mere credential with little actual worth, but which is a necessary prerequisite for any job. When one believes that all children have identical capabilities and all education must be exhaustively assessed in quantitative terms in order that teachers keep their jobs and schools keep their funding, there is only one direction possible. Down, I suppose. Yes, that does seem to be what's implied there. (laughs) With Neil Postman getting a mention, I wonder if you uh, might like to tackle another culture commentator, Nicholas Carr, and the impact of digitization of everything uh, on ev- on a intellectual life. Man, I can't read today. Carr is coming to speak at Luther in February, and the theme of his books has been a hot topic of conversation here. Have either of you read? I think his big book was The Shallows. No, uh, I haven't. I, I've heard the name Nicholas Carr, but I've not read him. Um, I mean, I've read about that book a lot. I haven't read it yet, though. I think I read the original. I think it was in the Atlantic article that led to that book, but I haven't read the actual book. I'm okay. sympathetic to the argument, but it, as I recall, it's a little neuroscience for my taste, which, you know, Todd's a scientist, so he may like more. Right, right. Uh, He's also a very good chess player. He he recently listened to the chess episode and spurred on by it, challenged me to online chess. Pretty soon you're going to be playing every, every one of our listeners. Oh, man, I hope because I, I, I don't think I was really in that game with Todd. <laughs> you're like uh, you're like those old men in Central Park who play two or three simultaneously. Oh man, well, except I mean, you lose it, them all. I'm yeah, sure, I was going to say if if those old men in Central Park get their butts handed to them, maybe. <laughs> A second topic he says that might bear discussion uh, is the related one: the value of solitude. What is it that makes solitude so productive for the intellectual life, and what is the impact on us as human beings, or if you prefer academia, in a world in which solitude is harder to come by? That is a great topic, but it's one that we probably are going to hold off until Grubbs comes back, because Grubbs, of the four of us, is the most monkish. Yeah. (laughs) I can agree with that. So, thank you, Todd. Thanks for writing in, as always. We have another email. I'm going to let Nathan cover this one, because I read that one. Yes, this one's from uh, Jonathan Ribesman. And again, Jonathan, if I'm mispronouncing your name, I do apologize. You've probably sent me a pronunciation guide, but I've lost it. Uh, Jonathan says, I'm enjoying the podcast as always. The work on my dissertation usually keeps me from taking time to email these days. 
I had to make an exception this time, though, since your Mino episode hit close to home. Uh, he notes that his own dissertation topic is in epistemology. Uh, so, a couple of things that he requests, and I'm going to start summarizing at this point. Uh, first of all, he wants to know if we would be willing to do an episode on analytic philosophy. <laughs> and he, he notes rightly <laughs> that Michael and I... Uh, to the extent we have a philosophy background, it tends to be in continental philosophy. That's largely because we come out of seminary and English department backgrounds. Uh, Michael, would you consider our pragmatism episode we did a while back as a point one episode, a, an, anal- an, yeah, an analytic philosophy episode? No, I wouldn't. I, I think of pragmatism as kind of soft continental rather than, uh, rather than analytic. Because well, I mean, it, I, it doesn't really have much to do with. I, I guess, I guess, if you're talking about C.S. Peirce, it, it has to do with science. But for, I mean, for the most part, pragmatism is not about logic or math or science, which is what I associate with analytic <laughs> philosophy. Am I right? I, 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 I'm still just twitching from the phrase "soft continental." I feel dirty all of a sudden. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so seems like uh, a way to cook an egg, doesn't it? Yes, that's actually much better than what I was thinking, so thank you for that, save. Uh, The other thing he requests is an episode on geometry, which uh, I would find fascinating. Michael, uh, would that be entirely painful to you? Uh, I would be very quiet. I don't don't know. (laughs) I haven't haven't studied geometry in any kind of, well, really any kind of way at all since seventh grade. Okay, all right, so. Pi uh, is 3.14. Yeah. Episode finished. I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. Um. <laughs> yeah. So, Jonathan, you might be waiting a while on those. I, I hate to tell you, we would uh, have but, to. We would have to bring in somebody on analytic philosophy. I yeah, mean, we really would. Because really we would really have work. to bring in someone who's sympathetic to it. I, I, you know, sympathetic is probably not the right word. I'm sympathetic to some of what they do. I, I do like Hillary Putnam. Uh-huh. But I mean, again, Hillary Putnam is a, is a pragmatist, and I think. I won't, I won't use the phrase again that, that bothers you so much, but I, I think I think pragmatism, while technically analytic, is much closer to continental. Okay, all right. Alistair right. McIntyre is technically an analytic philosopher, isn't he? Oh, is he really? I don't know. He's, he's Anglo-American. Well, I mean, I don't think it's strictly an ethnic division. I, <laughs> uh, I will say though, uh, Jonathan, if you and I'm sure you already listened to this if you listen to podcasts and you're a philosophy type, but. Uh, the podcast, The Partially Examined Life, often takes on uh, analytic figures. So uh, to the extent that I have any analytic philosophy background recently, uh, it's because I listened to that podcast. Yeah, I mean, they, they even did an episode on W.E.V.O. Quine, and I read the two uh, I read the two essays that they talked about because I tried to read their stuff before I listened to their podcast, and I could not follow them at all. So uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure an analytic episode is coming. I, I don't understand logic. Yeah, and and honestly, I haven't really dealt with it since the late '90s when I was an undergrad philosophy major. So, sorry, Jonathan. Well, anyway, Danny, uh, you know, now that we've disappointed people, let's get on to the good stuff, shall we? Okay. Well, uh, this is the second part of a apparently what we call our fall triptych. Um, we're last week we talked about Star Wars, and this week we're going to talk about The Empire Strikes Back. And I, I want to first of all thank you for letting me host. Uh, I know that that's turning over a great deal of power to someone outside the fold, and I appreciate the the trust there. Um, and You're particularly in the fold, since, Danny. <laughs> well, thank you. But uh, particularly since last week, I feel a little guilt about ranting too much about the prequels. I feel like it was so difficult for me to talk about uh, Star Wars without just defaulting to my disappointment in the prequels that I uh, have tried to uh, steer clear of that this week by um, focusing questions on uh, more of the material object that is The Empire Strikes Back. And let's just try to uh, stay positive today, Um, (laughs) Anderson. All right. All right. So uh, let's start with Michael. Michael, uh, last week, we started with some background and context for A New Hope, um, which normal people know as Star Wars. Uh, it turned out to be an unexpected hit, so the context for Empire Strikes Back becomes a little bit different. Can you give us a little background about this film's production and maybe speculate, if you can, about the impact of Lucas's decision not to direct this one? Yeah, um, he did not direct this one, as you say, and he didn't really write it either. And and the reason he didn't direct it, and I assume the reason he didn't write it, is because he decided that he wanted to devote 
all of his time to his production company, which is uh, Industrial Lights and Mag- Light, Light and Magic, not Lights, Industrial Light and Magic. And I believe they became LucasArts, although I can't, um, I can't say that for sure. So what he did was he went, um, and you know, for all the complaining we did about Lucas last week, this makes me like him so much better. He went to uh, he went to a former professor of his at USC Film School, Irving Kirshner, Irvin Kirshner, and asked him to direct um, t- to direct uh, the Empire Strikes Back. And he did this despite the fact I'm looking at Irvin Kirshner's filmography right now, and I don't know of a single movie he did before this. So this was not a big budget, popular filmmaker he went to. This was someone he respected from the world of academia. So, I mean, just, just to name off some of the movies that Irvin Kirshner directed. Stakeout on Dope Street. The Luck of Ginger Coffee. The Flim Flam Man. Up the Sandbox. <laughs> the Return of a Man Called Horse. And the one right before uh, The Empire Strikes Back is Eyes of Laura Mars. So, I mean, I he this is obviously not somebody he picked because he was a proven success at the box office it's someone he picked for <laughs> um, personal artistic reasons and it was obviously a good decision because i think basically everybody agrees empire strikes back is the best of the uh six movies so as, as far as the writing goes he uh he had he had a, a woman named lee brackett write the first draft of the screenplay instead of instead of writing it himself and he wasn't terribly happy with what she did but there was a big problem in asking her to revise it which is that she died um, oh. so he he wrote the second draft of the screenplay and then when he still wasn't satisfied he went and gave it to a uh, a guy named Lawrence Kasdan um and and he he completed um he completed the uh the draft and he would uh, he, he Kasdan also wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark which is why Lucas knew and liked him so he's responsible for at least two of the the best uh, action adventure movies from the uh, the 1980s, and he also did Jedi. So, um, in Empire Strikes Back, you see Lucas taking a more hands off approach. I mean, he's he's not directing; he's he's writing, but but he's not bound to his own script. He's he's just kind of fleshing it out. I think he is responsible for having. Uh, spoiler alert, although I can't imagine anybody listening to this doesn't know that Darth Vader is Luke's father. That That's something Lucas added in the second draft. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I think one of the reasons for the success of the movie is that Lucas is able to cede control to people he respects. Um, Nathan, um, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, the, what I would say is that, you know, part of what makes this movie interesting is that you know, it is continuing a storyline that, you know, was conceived, uh, but might never have been filmed. Uh, so, I mean, really, I mean, this is sort of a gift to Lucas. And like Michael said, I think he did a good job of, of covering this. Uh, one of the things that really makes it, I, I, I would agree, Michael, the strongest of the six movies, uh, is that he does focus on what he does best, and he doesn't try to have his fingers in every pie. Uh, so, I mean... If, if, you, if you think that Empire is much stronger as a film than A New Hope, uh, that's why it is. Yes, um, I think I completely agree with everything you said. And one thing that I kind of uh, discovered recently was that the, the actors were sort of kept in the dark about Darth Vader as well. Yes. Uh, oh, come on, <laughs> dude. You're going to ask me this next. <laughs> and uh, Oh, okay. <laughs> Man, <laughs> well, I was using that as a uh, as a a uh, a, segue. Uh, a segue. Is the word <laughs> that, this for. is my one big hit of the episode, Danny. Come on. <laughs> okay. Well, Nathan, uh, last week you educated us about monuments and Joseph Campbell's influence on the first film. Uh, this week, in what may or may not be related to that discussion, I'll leave that to you. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the revelation that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father? This is where, where we're getting at. And uh-huh. <laughs> Lucas's like uh, uh, decision to sort of withhold that. Uh, can It's one of the more memorable reveals in cinema history, and it seems to have a lasting cultural impact uh, even for people who don't like know or love these movies that that moment is still famous to everyone um why does that moment have such narrative power um aside from mark hamill's amazing performance as usual michael yeah i, 
I think he's better in this movie. I know you said last week that he gets worse as the trilogy goes on. I think he's substantially better in this movie. Well, but uh, if, if you if you watch just that scene, and probably there's a, a half dozen bootleg versions on YouTube, uh, the facial contortions in that reveal are just phenomenal. No! <laughs> they really are. Yeah. Now, what's great about this, and th- this is where Danny dang near stole my thunder, is that uh, the script that the actors on the set had uh, did not have that reveal in it. Uh, of course, the body inside the Darth Vader suit is not James Earl Jones, who is the voice of Darth Vader, but it's a uh, Scott's bodybuilder, whose name I forget. Probably you guys know because you know everything. Uh, thank you. Uh, and so he was a notorious blabbermouth. Uh, he was known for, you know, giving away secrets to really any sort of screen project he was on. So he was given a fake script. So what Mark Hamill was reacting to in that lovely facial contortion uh, was actually Darth Vader saying, uh, the one who betrayed you and the one who led me, led you right into my hands was Han Solo. Uh, and that's what Mark Hamill was reacting to. That's not possible. It can't be. I, I, heard, so he was, so I heard he was forth. reacting to Obi-Wan killed your father. Oh, was it Obi-Wan? Oh, shoot, I think you're right. I think you're right. That's the story I heard, too. Okay, yeah, you're right. I'm I'm mixing up my stories here. I'm sorry, guys. You're absolutely right. It's Obi-Wan killed your father. So at any rate, point being, uh, at the premiere is the way that I heard the story. So again, correct me if I'm getting this part wrong. Uh, the actors who were on the set were just as surprised as the rest of the audience was when James Earl Jones uh, utters the famous line, Do not make me destroy you. I am your father. Uh, so the power of that scene really, uh, is that George Lucas once again is tapping into, you know, the power of myth that, you know, he learned by reading Joseph Campbell, uh, the idea that the great enemy and the great, uh, I mean, really the great evil in the world is also your origin and, you know, that, that great contradiction, uh, is what's at the heart of that reveal. Now, uh, it gets played out in interesting ways that people react to either positively or negatively in Return of the Jedi. We'll talk about that next episode. Uh, but right here, uh, what Luke realizes is what Oedipus realizes in the famous reveal in Sophocles, namely that you know the one that he is destined to destroy uh, is also the one you know to whom he is close, most closely tied in the world. Uh, and therefore, you know, the one who is about to turn him to evil and destroy his own soul is the one who ha- should have the most care for him. And also that, you know, uh, Darth Vader, the great evil, like I said, uh, is not the one who caused his father to cease to exist, but rather altered his father's existence. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I that's sort of the mythological critique of it. I mean, Michael, is there anything else that uh, either I, I've flubbed here as I tend to do in these episodes or that you would add to that. The story I heard about the premiere, and I don't know if this is true or not, is that when that, when that line is spoken, Harrison Ford turned to Mark Hamill and said, what? <laughs> 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 so I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but, uh, I, you it know, should be. <laughs> when the, uh, when the myth and the history conflict, you teach the myth, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> also, you know, people, as I said, that that was added in the second draft by Lucas, and and whether he had this in mind from the beginning, I don't know. I was trying to figure that out as I was watching A New Hope last week. Uh-huh. I was I was trying to figure out whether he knew when he was writing that that Vader was going to be his father. And I know people say that uh, Vader is you know like the German German Vader is German for father, and so oh sure, perhaps sure. he had that in mind the whole time. But that was not my impression. My impression is that is something he um, he decided on while he was writing that second script, but I don't know. Right, right. Well, and I mean, the the etymology could play into either storyline, you know, if you went with the on-set script, you know, he's the one who darkened the father. Yeah. If you play with the etymology. So, I mean, that that could be he killed the father or he is the dark version of the father. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think we should uh, ascribe too much foresight to George Lucas on that score. You guys <laughs> saw that when you were kids. Did you know that... Darth Vader was Luke's father when you saw it for the first time? No, I did not. Did it blow I your did. mind? I... Yeah. Did it blow your mind, Nathan? 
Um, first of all, I was very, very young. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think that I really grasped the, you know, the full mythological gravity of it. Uh, but it certainly was a surprise when I was, you know, a four year old and saw that for the first time on TV. Yeah. And I was, I, I, I was reading these through sort of comic adaptations at the time and, um, and I wasn't allowed to go to movies cause I grew up, uh, sectarian and uh and so we uh uh like i i read the moment right for the first time in a comic book and, and so it was uh uh it was i don't know it was even in that form the the, the moment had some impact to me so yeah. um, i do think though that looking back at star wars you could see how star wars they weren't sure the sequels were going to be made right and it yeah. stands alone as a movie right i mean you can sort of see it as a standalone movie um and but like looking back, there are sort of moments like when Obi-Wan is talking about his father, he does seem to be hiding something in Uncle Ben. You know, there, there's some sort of um, like Uncle Ben's particular his line about not wanting Luke to end up like his father. I mean, that it's easy to look back and map that knowledge onto the first movie in retrospect, although I don't know that it was apparent at the time. So mm-hmm. it's very well put together. I mean, credit where credit's due. The, yeah. This movie fits rather seamlessly into the first one, even if they weren't exactly planned that way. And maybe they were. Right, right. And, you know, that's one of those things where it, it could have been that, I mean, that drafting process that, you know, Michael described, I mean, was precisely to make it a closer fit, right? Uh, you know, perhaps Lucas himself was thinking about the hints that were dropped in A New Hope and said, okay, you know, let's let's take this, you know, where it could go if we made it, you know, the most shocking logical conclusion possible. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I think, meaningful that that's the moment, right? I think it's right after Luke's hand is cut off. Uh, am I correct in that, Nathan? Um, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. When he makes that reveal. And so this, of course, becomes the beginning of the mechanization of, of Luke's body, like, like Darth Vader himself. And so that kind of uh, heritage is sort of like in the foreground, even in the, in the, the costuming and set design right there. So, uh, yeah. Now, I will say what, what still feels like a cheat to me when I was watching this again, pre- preparing for this episode, uh, is the fact that, I mean, what looks like and in your gut should be a suicide sequence after that reveal uh, turns into a mere escape sequence. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you would prefer this movie if Luke Skywalker had fallen to his death? I, I don't know if I would prefer it because I really like Return of the Jedi. Uh, but uh, that seems to be the logic of the scene. And I do feel like it, it you know, uh, well, first of all, I mean, the fact that he fell that distance and then, you know, just went into a gentle slide is, you know, straining credulity. And he held on uh, with one hand for 20 minutes or however long he had to. Well, yeah, that too, that back. too. Uh, but again, you know, the, those are all things that, you know, um, when I catch myself thinking too hard about those things, I, I realize that I'm turning to the fanboy side and I, I try to <laughs> reclaim myself from making that turn. Yeah. It was probably all the midichlorians in his uh, blood. <laughs> Sorry, Danny. I know you said to stay away from the prequels. <laughs> okay. Well, bro- broke that guys, rule. <laughs> if you guys wish to, it's okay. I, this is a personal uh, <laughs> discipline of my own. I'm going to try and keep. Hey, I praised uh, but... I praised George Lucas in the first question, so I think I'm, I think I'm free to make fun of the prequels now. <laughs> but also, there's some continuity forward where you're talking about where he's hanging and he has this sort of force link with Leia. Um, there is some sort of sense then that like the predictor that she's also a Skywalker, right? And then like, oh, the, sure, sure, yeah. Spoiler the, alert. Oh yeah, I, and is, I, that, <laughs> is that necessary? Like you say, like at this point, like yeah, it, it's thirty years down the line, folks. We can, I think, we can <laughs> spoil that. Yeah, all the um, jokes have already been made, right? So right, right. Well, see, I, I, what I couldn't figure out is whether whether they'd already decided she was his sister. Because if they had, it's real gross to have them make out at the beginning of this movie. Yes. And when Yoda says there is another, mm-hmm. like as it's taking off, it seems they have that in mind. Um, and so that is really kind of uh, a mean sort of narrative <laughs> for the audience. <laughs> so. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the family tree is definitely, a, you know, it, it, even though we just said this is the strongest of the movies, the family tree thing, either Lucas is being very gross or very sloppy. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, I think that the the setting of that moment is important. I mean, you're sort of 
this kind of space in the sky where everything is up in the air. And, and so I kind of, I think it's a nice transition to the next question to Michael. Uh, last week, I speculated briefly about the role that landscapes play in the original movie. And it seems to me that they're even more important to the story in the sequel here. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the various element, environments, I'm sorry, in this movie intersect with its uh, story and themes? Other than space and like the interiors of spaceships, which we talked about enough last week, I think, I counted four major environments. So you have the, the ice planet Hoth, and what I didn't realize, I've always called it the ice planet Hoth, but in fact it is a planet in the Hoth system, so the planet itself is not Hoth. Um, the, the ice planet Hoth is where the rebel base is at the beginning, and they, they have clearly chosen this planet because it's so inhospitable, and it, because it's off in the, uh, the far reaches of the galaxy, and it's not at all the sort of place you would expect somebody to set up a rebel base. Um, not only that, it opens the it opens the film on kind of a down note, and and as everybody who know, who's seen this film knows, this is really kind of a downer of a film. I mean, it begins with Luke frozen in the snow, and it ends with Han Solo frozen in carbonite. Um, so you have Hoth, and then you have um, you have Dagobah, which which is where Luke meets Yoda, and is is very much a kind of primordial world. Because, you know, Yoda is bringing, as I'm, we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, Yoda is bringing Luke back to kind of the foundations of existence. And so it makes sense that, that he lives in this swamp environment where it seems like everything is constantly on the verge of devolving. Um, you get the asteroid that Han and Leia and Chewbacca and 3PO fly into. And it turns out, of course, that it is, I think, in, in the second best reveal of the movie, it turns out that it's not um, an asteroid at all, but they that they are inside the stomach of some sort of disgusting space worm. And again, this is a this is an environment of nothingness and of blackness. And it's a it's another very bleak place to be, especially I mean, they're literally in the belly of the beast. And then um, finally, you get Cloud City, which is, I, I think, one of the more amazing creations from from Lucas and, and from the the Star Wars folks. Uh, Cloud City is a city on a gas planet. Uh, is the gas planet called Beren? Uh, Bespin. Bespin. And I, I was I was reading about this, and 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 the idea here is that Bespin is is a it's a gas planet like Jupiter or Saturn, which means that um, no human life could possibly exist on it but they have just this kind of 200 foot space in one of the atmospheres it's one of the spheres i suppose maybe not the atmosphere that is that is livable and so they've created this city in between poison gas and so um again you have a you have a place where life is is very inhospitable and very uh, on the verge of collapsing and not only that, uh, cl- the way Cloud City is designed and, and decorated, it, it's very much a dystopian future. I mean, it looks very much like you would imagine Brave New World to look like. And and that also makes sense given what happens in Cloud City. Given that mm-hmm. the city is run, in fact, by a career criminal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even if he's a charming one. Did I leave Maybe. anything out? No, no, those are great. Uh, you did. That's a great. Uh, I hadn't thought actually of some of those things. That was really terrific. Although I always found the the asteroid monster to be just sort of on a biological level really like un impossible. I mean, how would something <laughs> grow that big with no food? I mean, like, well, how, how often does <laughs> not only that there are, there are those weird bat creatures that just apparently yeah. live without any kind of problem in his stomach. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, yes, yeah. So yeah, there, there's some like logical scientific space magic. There. Yes. Yeah, yes. there you go. There you go. I mean, but, uh, of those four, I think that Bespin is the most fascinating. And I mean, Michael hit uh, the environmental factors, but the other thing is that politically, it sort of exists on the margin of imperial power uh, in a way that you know really Tatooine served in A New Hope, right? So it's one of those places that is not entirely in the grasp of the Empire, but it's up for grabs at the beginning of the movie. Uh, so one of the things about that kind of environment is that Darth Vader actually has to make maneuvers in order to track and to catch the space adventurers. And, you know, that makes it a really, I mean, a, you know, a an interesting environment because unlike Hoth, where, you know, it's entirely uninhabited, uh, they're in Bespin, I mean... 
the way that he entraps Han Solo and Princess Leia and Chewbacca uh, is not necessarily by brute force. You know, he doesn't send AT-AT walkers, uh, but instead he makes sort of political machinations and, you know, threatens Lando Calrissian with a garrison stationed there on his base, mucking up his commercial enterprises. Uh, So, I mean, it's a very interesting contrast to Hoth that way. No, I agree, and I think that the the um, uncertainty of existence that is really inherent in all of those um, um, settings are really is really important. To really, I think one of the reasons this movie is is so powerful is that that's it's it's interesting in a way that the other one wasn't because everything is still so up in the air as Luke was in the moment he finds out that he's uh, confronting his father. And uh, and when Michael was talking about Hoth and, and Luke being buried in the snow at the beginning and Han being buried frozen in ice at the and that was that was I hadn't made that parallel before that was really really interesting mm-hmm. and and it reminds me though of one of the kind of I think silly cinematic mistakes like of all time uh, between these movies mark hamill had some sort of uh, vehicle accident i don't remember if it was a motorcycle and his face was it literally changed i mean his, he doesn't look like the same person in the second movie as he did in the first one um, because his nose just looks like totally um like smashed in a little bit and um and at the beginning of this movie, what happens but that character gets hit in the head by this this yeti creature right and so a wampa, okay, and so like, but before they ha- that happened, they show Luke's face. Like, why not just save Luke's face until after he's been like hit by the yeti? Then you'd have some sort of uh, diegetic sort of explanation for why he looks like <laughs> different than the Luke Skywalker that we've just grown to love. And so, oh, it's um, not true, but, however, that that scene was added because of Luke's accident. That's the rumor. But, well, no, but I, if it was, they they pulled right. it off poorly. That's what yeah, I'm what saying. Danny's saying is it could have been. <laughs> yeah, if he had just kept a... his mask on until after the Wampa attack. Yeah, a convenient uh, explanation that you wouldn't have to sort of just ignore then. So, but anyway, I digress. Uh, this is a is a great movie, and I don't want to I don't want to belittle it. You also have to remember that that these these movies came out in the days before VHS, so so I don't think Lucas foresaw people watching them right in a row. Mm. Ah, okay. This is a good point, actually. Yeah, this is uh, the the way these movies were received. It was a, a totally different time. That's a really good point, and probably not watched over and over either. So, or you know, yeah. if you watched them over and over, it would have been in the theater, so it would have been a a real commitment. Mm-hmm. Well, people who would watch something over and over—that's a nice transition again, uh, Nathan. <laughs> uh, one thing that we didn't get to very much last week, but I think it's really Im- vital to the legacy of these movies is what I'll call fanboydom. Um, uh, <laughs> somehow the devotees of this franchise seem to find amazing ways to fill the gaps that the story leaves. And one example recently, there was a piece published in Wired that talks about Darth Vader's military strategy in the, at the Battle of Hoth, at the Hoth system. Uh, rather than just outright make fun of the Enterprise, though, I, I think that there's a, a, an impressive amount of detail that shows some real like thought and engagement there that's actually kind of heartwarming on some level. Uh, mm. can you, can you set that piece up for us and then maybe comment a little bit about fanboy culture and this franchise? Yeah. I, I and when you pose this question, Danny, I realize I'm going to get myself in a world of trouble in one direction or another. So I might as well dive into it. So uh, actually fanboy culture reminds me, or, or let me put it this way. The, the conflict between what I see as sort of, interpretation of a film as a pop culture artifact on one hand and then fanboy culture on the other really reminds me of sort of conflicting approaches to biblical texts. Uh, because I mean, for instance, when I am reading, uh, you know, just to give an example, the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke, I'm inclined to say, okay, what we've got here are two constructions of the origins of Jesus and I'm inclined to say, okay, what is Matthew doing as a text? What is Luke doing as a text? Uh, of course, this differs very much from the approach that a lot of folks take when they say, okay, what we need to do is take all of the pieces from Matthew and all of the pieces from Luke and put them together like a jigsaw puzzle so that we can construct one uber narrative of the origin of Jesus, right? I think the same sort of thing happens when someone like me takes a look at you know, the Battle of Hoth sequence in Empire Strikes Back, and then when the fanboys get a, get a hold of it, uh, I'm inclined to say, okay, what you got here is 
a great visual of these giant dinosaur-like AT-AT walkers, you know, the March of Doom coming towards the struggling rebel base. You've got the dramatic John Williams music-fueled escape sequence. Uh, you've got the great, you know, visual. And, and, you know, think about Darth Vader. I mean, what makes that character is his entrances, right? Uh, from the very <laughs> opening scene of A New Hope to, you know, descending the ramp out of the Imperial shuttle at the beginning of Jedi. Uh, really all the way to episode three when he is, you know, raised up out of the cyborg construction apparatus and he emerges as the Darth Vader we all know from our childhoods, right? Uh, that's how I see the Hoth battle sequence. You know, this is an opportunity for inevitable doom, exciting chase scene, uh, you know, a moment where the ion cannon strikes the Imperial Star Destroyer and the rebel transport escapes narrowly. It's a chance for Han Solo to do some fancy flying. Okay, this is what the text is doing. That's not how fanboys approach it, right? The way that fanboys approach it, and this Wired article, which hopefully we'll link to in the show notes, uh, basically says, okay, you know, let's take a look at it systematically. Uh, let's take a look at it as an actual military event that we can trace, the same way that we would trace, you know, the Battle of Kanai or the Battle of Gettysburg or something like that. Uh, and the point that this article makes, I reread it prepping for the episode, and it really blows my mind is that, you know, this is a parable of sorts about how military empires overreach and their arrogance keeps them from crushing rebellions. And it actually compares it to the assaults on the Tora Bora caves during the George W. Bush administration. <laughs> uh, and, you know, for that kind of approach, this is a, well, I mean, it's a historical environment that you can examine systematically uh, so, you know, like I said, I mean, this is one of those things that makes thinking about Star Wars so interesting is that these are two, I would say, incommensurable ways to approach the same artifact, uh, each of which uh, produces results that are entirely different from each other. Uh, Michael, I mean, you're probably a little bit more versed in the sort of pop culture, you know, fan culture sociology of all this. I mean, is there anything you would add to that? I would add that there's nothing really new about that. There's been people doing that with the Iliad and the Aeneid for centuries. Oh, okay, okay. And in fact, mm. I, I think I read this on TV Tropes, so I can't claim... Um, I can't. Speaking of nerds, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, the, the Hoth sequence is an homage to uh, Hannibal. Um, Hannibal crossing the Alps with the elephants. Oh, okay. And uh, and the scene where they're leaving um, Cloud City, where where Chewbacca has three uh, PO on his back, is is the Aeneid. So so I mean, you get you get Lucas. Uh, okay. You get okay. Lucas very consciously courting that kind of uh, classical mythology. I've never thought of Chewbacca as Aeneas. <laughs> Just in that scene. <laughs> That's really interesting, and I think I mean this because the movie purposefully does sort of court these kind of mythological archetypes. Uh, it does sort of uh, lend itself to this kind of historical process of of cultural ownership. Then, and and I think that explains some of the animosity that fans have with Lucas himself, who is someone who really kind of uh, prized, you know like golem like or golem like i'm sorry uh prizes control right you know and so uh he uh those are very different by the way yes yes i know <laughs> yes sorry uh, i was actually just thinking about the golem for a separate thing and so this is why i made that mistake excuse me but um but so i feel like that the kind of cultural ownership that is really kind of bigger than just these movies like as michael points out does sort of point out the kind of the struggle between Lucas and his fans and people, why people like me sort of resent him so much uh, on some <laughs> level. And, and I just discovered there's a movie on Netflix that I need to watch. It's called the people versus George Lucas. It's basically a, a little documentary about this process that I haven't gotten to see yet, but I'd like to. So, um, but yeah, I, I do uh, want to, I do want to say that the, the sort of fan Nathan's talking about that, that examines the Hoth battle from a military perspective is uh, just one type of super fan, right? I mean, people people make their homes in these movies in a lot of different ways and that's only one of them mm -hmm. 
Did you ever see when um, Attack of the Clones came out uh, on the Conan O'Brien show, uh, Triumph the Insult Dog? Yes. Uh, outside. <laughs> that, I think, may be the funniest 10 minutes of television in the history of television. That, that is a, a true classic. If you can find a link to that, maybe, and, and put it on the website. It's, it's a, a really good illustration of somebody kind of really heartwarmingly brutalizing i think these these poor people uh, it's like these, it's these, are, these are people who waited outside for tickets for days or maybe even weeks yeah. so they could go the first the, the first moment they could mm-hmm. i don't know i mean if you if you've listened to our fans and fandom episode you know that i am oh i don't know uncomfortable with uh with fandoms <laughs> But then again, yeah, I, I yeah. have admitted I have admitted publicly to writing Back to the Future fan fiction, so maybe. Uh... <laughs> well, there you go. Well, and I, I can't cast any stones either because by fluke cons- or fluke, uh, I don't want to say coincidence, but uh, and not consequence either. What's the co word I'm looking for here? Uh, by a fluke of events, I'll just put it that way. Uh, I was at the midnight show of episode one. So I was among the first in the Eastern time zone to view that thing. And what costume were you wearing? <laughs> I wasn't actually because I didn't know I was going until about nine o'clock and I was hanging out with some old high school buddies. I had just graduated college uh, and one of my buddies walked into my friend Ryan Smith's house and said, hey, I've got eight tickets to Phantom Menace. You guys want to go? And so I went and and kid you not in this this. This still, I, I, I scratch my head at it. Uh, we were sitting behind a row of Black Panthers, kid you not. <laughs> In Indianapolis, yes. In 1999? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Either that or people who were dressed in all black and wearing berets for some other reason. You know, um, <laughs> you, you know Samuel L. Jackson, who plays Mace Windu in the, in the prequels, uh, was a Black Panther. Maybe they were there to see him. That could be, that could be, but I mean... I wanted it, it to give it... that context before I just said maybe they were there to see Samuel Jackson <laughs> so that it didn't sound like I thought that black people only cared about other black people. But yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it, like I said, I mean, it was one of those bizarre things, and of course, you know, none of us white boys were saying a word about it <laughs> while we were in there, but... <laughs> Did they like uh, the movie? They seemed to. I, they, you know, they didn't seem especially displeased with it. <laughs> you know, Victoria was always trying to get me to go to midnight showings of the Harry Potter movies, but like, I I can't think of anything I would less rather do than go to a midnight showing of a <laughs> of a movie with a fan base like that. Right, right. I hate even going on the first or second weekend to see too. something like that. Uh, yeah, oh, it's... sure, sure. I I very rarely go to movies on their first run. Period. Like I said, that was just one of those fluke things where all of a sudden I was in possession of a ticket, so I said, "Why not?" Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, if somebody else is paying. <laughs> well, no, I had to pay for it, but, you know, it was one of those things where I, and, you know, um, Michael, I don't know if you were old enough to be aware of it in 99, but. I was 17. I mean, okay, okay. So, I mean, you know, the, the word on the street was that, you know, the show was sold out for the first six nights or something like that, uh, that people were making reservations for tickets. So the fact that I was going to be one of the first seemed pretty cool. Yeah. And you didn't know at the time how bad that movie was. No, I didn't. <laughs> how how could you have known? And sorry, Danny, we're back into trashing the prequels. No, no, it's it's not me. It's you. It's okay. We should um, just set aside two minutes of every episode from here on. Not not just the Star Wars episodes, but I mean every episode to just kick uh, Phantom Menace squarely in the crotch. There you go. <laughs> Phantom Menace is Zemeckis's Beowulf. Which Danny yeah, used say, to be gotta... used to be the movie we complained about in almost every episode. Right, right. I see. So I have yeah, not seen that. Phantom Menace, Beowulf, and Three Hundred. I think we can kick those three movies around <laughs> with impunity. I saw Three Hundred on an airplane to France one day, or once, and so that's, that's how I saw it. So that was a that was a good airplane to France movie. I think. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> well, Michael, uh, this is the movie where the force really gets fleshed out and takes front and center with the entrance of what I think is a really remarkable cinematic creation, Yoda. Uh, Can you talk a a little bit about the theological implications of the force and how it's narrated in this movie? 
I could try. I'm probably going to end up kicking it over to Nathan, who knows more theology than I do. By the way, I said last week I was worried about Yoda, and I was right to be worried. I do not like him as much as I remember liking him. Um, however, he was not. I mean, he it wasn't. It wasn't. He's not bad. I mean, I, th- I think he is. He is a, a very interesting character, very well done. Although I got to say, um, my wife and I were watching it. And when he when he first comes on, she turns to me and says, "So what's the difference between him and George R. Banks?" <laughs> <laughs> Which is true, right? I mean, Yoda is played for laughs at the beginning. He's just kind of a a goofy stereotype of a uh, of a wise man, and you know, as the movie progresses, he gets uh, he gets wiser and less jokey. So that's the difference, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he's kind of annoying at first, right? Um, well, he has to feel Luke out, right? And so, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so th- this is a movie where it becomes clear the degree to which the Force is indebted to Eastern philosophy. It's very much about the interconnectedness of all things. Oh, I'm trying to remember the line Yoda says to to Luke. You have to. I think he even says you have to be one with the stone that he's trying to lift. Mm-hmm. Which is which is very Eastern in its in its thought, and, and I mean. Um, you you also have this idea that the force is in tune with human emotion to the extent where if you want to be on the good side of the force you have to you have to banish from your psyche all these negative destructive emotions uh, especially anger which is what mm-hmm. luke is clearly struggling with throughout his time on Dagobah is very he's very angry at Darth Vader and so i mean the 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 big secret here is if you if you face a Sith with anger, you will become a Sith. And and so there you not only have, I mean, that, that's still fairly Eastern, but you also have a bit of Nietzsche in there, right? Um, uh-huh. it, he who fights monsters becomes them, and when you look into the abyss, it's looking right back at you. Mm. And then, then, you, then you have this, um, you know, Nathan, you complained last week about the uh, the Freudian background to the first three movies, but I, I think you see that pretty strongly here as well. You get Luke going into that primordial cave where he he confronts the man he he does not know is his father, right? And 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 realizes on some level that he can only defeat him by not trying to defeat him. Mm-hmm. So I mean that's about all i've got i'm not sure i'm not sure how well thought out the force is i think it's it's just kind of a bunch of loose concepts loosely connected am i am i missing something nathan well i mean there is that very very memorable scene where uh luke's uh x-wing fighter sinks into the swamp uh and yoda takes that moment to say all right you know this is your chance you know move it out of the swamp with the force and you know luke um basically says, you know, uh, that can't be done. It's too big. You know, uh, we've been lifting stones and we've been doing acrobatic, you know, tree swinging, but, uh, this is, I mean, in, in strict physical terms, it's a much bigger object, but you know, the, I guess the philosophical import is, you know, this is the technology that gets me from planet to planet. This isn't the realm of the force. Right. Uh, and of course, you know, Yoda says, you know, and I'm, I'm going to botch the Yoda syntax, so I apologize in advance for that. But, you know, uh, judge by size, do not, you know, judge me by my size, do you? Uh, the implication being that, you know, the force is something that disregards the sort of mathematical comparisons that we make between magnitude and finitude. Uh, so, you know, famously, Luke says, you ask the impossible, he walks away. Yoda then lifts the starfighter out of the swamp and sets it on more solid ground. Luke says, you know, I can't believe it. And Yoda famously says, that is why you fail. Uh, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, the force, like you already said, Michael, is uh, something that a Jedi, which is what Luke is training to be, uh, doesn't necessarily control so much as he steps in line with it. And you're right, it's very Taoist in its character. Uh, you know, you do not uh, make the force do things, but rather you do not resist the force as it does what it does. Uh, Danny, is there anything else about Yoda in particular that you want to talk about? I personally like Yoda when he's, uh, you know, rooting through Luke's stuff and, you know, doing yeah, all too. that kind of thing. Uh, maybe it's because... 
Yeah, maybe because the pain doesn't go on as long as Jar Jar Binks does. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it seems like a facade with him, right? He's just sort of trying to get Luke to uh, give him an opportunity to be uh, impatient and angry, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know, one thing about it's clearly Eastern, and I think one thing is interesting to me about the uh, the religion of the Force here is that. It also, particularly with the little witticisms that, like you mentioned, that Yoda has these little bits of wisdom, uh-huh. uh, religious in nature. You see them played in in like church services as illustrations of Christianity. Sometimes, you know, and, and, <laughs> yes, and, you do. <laughs> and, and and I find it it's a fascinating like importation of of an Eastern philosophy into uh, a a monotheistic uh, like context, and, and yet it, I it works in some weird way, I think, uh, that in a way that I, I can't quite explain. And I was hoping the, the, the seminary guys would, uh, would have, uh, some insight for me. And you, you have, you've sort of cleared things up for me. I well, think. I mean, to answer that question, Dan, I mean, part of it is that the star Wars movies, you know, the ones from 77 to 83 really are the mythology of a generation. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, even though philosophically i would say and michael you can gainsay me here if you want to they are incompatible with most of christian theology uh the fact of the matter is that you know that dirty s word that michael likes to bring up syncretism uh has crept into american christianity uh to an extent that you know uh when we hear bits from empire strikes back or top gun uh they seem like they are christian because they're part of our soul because they are our stories Mm. I would say the idea that that emotions like anger and impatience can can take you over and turn you into the sort of person you don't want to be, I, I would say that is compatible with Christianity. That's just virtue ethics. But but the the stuff about being one with the rock and stepping into the, <laughs> the, this kind of unseen power, I, I don't know. Uh, I, that that seems less compatible. You know, it's worth noting Lucas calls himself a Buddhist Methodist. <laughs> oh, fascinating, fascinating. So maybe we'd have to ask him how that works. Yeah. I... <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Uh, and another, you know, just a side note, like Jedi is a, an officially recognized religion. Uh, I know in Australia, Nathan tells me in the UK as well now. And so there's, this is a, uh, a a fictionalized version of an Eastern philosophy that has become codified in the real world in its own in its own right and i think that that's a uh, uh kind of a fascinating sort of uh, output of uh fanboydom so yeah see my earlier see my earlier comments about fandom yes <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i couldn't hang with those people <laughs> well nathan uh we talked about theology a little bit but i think that the force presents itself a chance to do a little bit of a philosophical break dance for you here. Um, <laughs> so tell me what is going on with the scene in the cave that Michael talked about uh, and Luke's failure, quote unquote. Uh, can you set that scene up in terms of the story and then put it into some sort of uh, philosophical context? Sure. First of all, this is a scene that has a great deal of dramatic tension with it because as Yoda is taking Luke painstakingly through Jedi training, which is, which by definition is a process uh, that cannot happen quickly. Uh, events are transpiring in Bespin City that are putting Leia and Han and Chewbacca into very immediate danger. So really the second half of the film is this tension between slow motion and fast motion. Uh, so that, you know, you've got to understand that this is what's going on here, but as Luke has been uh, training for a while, uh, Yoda takes him to a place where there is a sort of subterranean entrance into a lower level of the swamp. Uh, We're going to ignore the nature of fluid dynamics for this scene, so just bear with me. Uh, And (laughs) we're also going to ignore what you think you know up to this point about the Force because Yoda, who has been talking about the dark side as something which is largely a product of psychological states, for, for lack of a better phrase, uh, all of a sudden says that the dark side is very powerful here, uh, so all of a sudden the Force can be uh, positive or negative, destructive or harmonious in a place rather than in a person. Uh, now, the reason that you want to suspend your disbelief is because if you're willing to, you get one of the most powerful scenes in the whole franchise. Uh, Luke enters the... Well, before Luke enters this place, first of all, 
he knows intuitively that he has to go in. Uh, you know, there's no dialogue that explains why he does. Uh, but he immediately reaches for his belt on which hang his blaster and his lightsaber. Uh, and Yoda, in, in a moment that, you know, I just said that it's incompatible with Christianity, but this is a moment that, you know, uh, reminds me of, you know, Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? I mean, Yoda tells him, you know, those things won't serve you there. Uh, wherever Luke is going in the next few moments, uh, the weapons that have protected him up to this point will not protect him. And so as he goes in, uh, all of a sudden, Darth Vader is there before him. And again, it's a great entrance because he really does appear out of nowhere, uh, which is part of what makes Darth Vader so great is the dramatic entrance. Uh, and they have a, a brief melee with lightsabers. Uh, I believe, and, and Danny, I now that I'm thinking about this, I'm second-guessing myself, I believe Luke draws first, does he not? I do believe that's true. Okay, so that's important, because I, I remember that being important, but then I thought, oh no, am I, <laughs> am I mapping my own philosophy onto this scene? Okay, so Luke draws first. His lightsaber is out before Vader's is. After a brief melee, Luke strikes off the head of Darth Vader. And if you're seeing this for the first time, as I did you know, when I was four years old on, you know, in a televised version... Uh, it's very disconcerting because you just saw Darth Vader, you know, talking to bounty hunters on a super star destroyer. Uh, and you know, you're thinking, okay, what, how in the world did he get to Dagobah? Uh, but in, in a moment that, you know, again, the special effects aren't that special, uh, but philosophically it's dynamite. Uh, the face mask of the Darth Vader head on the ground detonates and inside, uh, is the face of Mark Hamill or Luke Skywalker. Uh, and so, you know, this is what Michael was alluding to just a moment ago, uh, the aphorism of Friedrich Nietzsche that uh, when you fight monsters, take care that you not become a monster yourself, and when, the, when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares into you. Uh, so, you know, this is one of those places where Luke realizes the nature of this struggle, and really it sets up what's going to go on in Return of the Jedi. Uh, when he faces Darth Vader, uh, even if the familial ties are not convincing for you, and, you know, uh, there is, I mean, some discussion to be had about, you know, whether a father that he meets for the first time just before he gets his hand cut off uh, is going to be, you know, a compelling father figure. Uh, but, you know, in this moment, he realizes that uh, Darth Vader, among other things, is a personification of the discord and the chaos and the violence uh that come as a temptation for the warrior uh and so i mean you know in this scene he realizes that to attack darth vader the way that he thinks a jedi should attack evil really might not be a true victory uh michael is there, are there any other implications that you would want to draw out of this scene no, I think I said what I wanted to say. I'm sorry I, if I scooped you. I forgot you were being asked <laughs> that question. Right, that's all right. <laughs> no, no, you were setting him up for for further uh, exploration. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, I just you know called an audible, and I decided to do just a close reading of the scene. So, <laughs> yeah, and and no, I think that that's actually really enlightening to me. Um, and and just to sort of go back to fanboydom one more time. Um, you raised the question of, about the kind of incongruity with uh, why the force now is in a place and not within, you know, human emotion uh, or an interaction with the force by a human. Um, I heard a theory once on the, on the internet somewhere um, where there's a, a theory out there that the reason Yoda chose Dagobah to hide on was because of that place nullified his positive force, force presence and Darth Vader and the emperor couldn't find him. And so this was a, a, a fanboy. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Sort of, <laughs> rationalization, you know, that to try to, like you were saying, to try and put everything into this sort of uber narrative, right? So no, I think, right, uh, right. I, you know, the systematic theology of Star Wars. <laughs> I, <laughs> oh, there's your next book. I know you have a yeah, lot. Yeah, um, no, thank you. I, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't even like to do systematic theology within the Christian tradition. So I, <laughs> you know, Dick Stubb has that book, uh, Christian Wisdom of the Jedi Masters. Oh, does so I, I think he may beat to it. <laughs> I didn't know that book existed. That disappoints me a little bit. <laughs> well, and I, thinking 
about this, you know, the seeming incongruity with Christianity that this Eastern philosophy has. The movie is so archetypical, like in, in so many ways, that the um, uh, it's for some reason it's easy for a Christian, I think, in America, particularly for reasons that Nathan just outlined, um, are able to sort of metaphorize, if that's a word that I'm not, that's a terrible word if it is one, but um, I'm using it anyway. But uh, it's, it's able to sort of take these things as metaphors for their own faith. And so it doesn't necessarily become a, a replacement for the faith, but more of an artistic expression of it. So just to give the cut the fanboy some slack, I suppose. All but, right. All right. We'll um, cut some slack. <laughs> the Christian fanboys in this case. So, <laughs> yes, there's a podcast. So, right so there, we, too. We've thrown the youth ministers of the world a bone. <laughs> yes. We, 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 an episode called um, fans and fanatics. Ah. Like like many many years like that was I think our first summer my wife my wife guessed it on it she likes to call uh. it our least popular episode which <laughs> I, I don't think the facts actually bear out no not by any stretch <laughs> that's funny no but there's a parallel podcast the Christian fanboy alongside the Christian humanist oh, that's, what, that's what that's what you can do when Grubs comes back <laughs> yeah thank you <laughs> uh, well let's uh, wrap things up for today uh, with each of us. Uh, maybe talking briefly about something about this movie that helps cement its status um, about as what is broadly thought to be the best of all the Star Wars movies. Uh, Michael, do you want to start? I do. Um, and, and this is not unique to this movie in the series. It's in at least the first three. I don't know about the trilogy, but um, the non-English speaking characters and the, the rather large role they play. So you have the two most notable are R2-D2, who speaks in a series of blips and bloops. And you have Chewbacca, who speaks in a kind of mournful growl, <laughs> and and it's a it's a testimony either to the script or to the I, I hesitate to say the performances, although I guess that's part of it that you you really do end up feeling for these characters when R two D two gets sucked into the swamp in Dagobah. Part of you worries that he's not going to make it out again. When mm -hmm. he gets is it this movie where he gets shot, or is that that's the that's the original, isn't it? And also Return of the Jedi. I think he gets uh, smoked in some way in each of the first three films. Yeah. And I can't remember the prequels. And he screams. You, you really kind of... Think, and Chewbacca's... The best performance he gives in the whole trilogy is uh, when when Han Solo was frozen into carbonite. Chewbacca lets out, you know, a sustained version of his normal mournful growl that is, I think, genuinely affecting if you care about these characters. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a long tradition in film of, of wordless and non-English speaking characters who nevertheless are human. And I think particularly of Tinkerbell from the Disney Pink, Peter Pan. Um, and, and this continues that tradition very well. Mm -hmm. Harpo Marx. <laughs> I forgot you like the Marx Brothers. <laughs> yeah, I would point up a, a character who we've mentioned but really haven't dwelt on, namely Lando Calrissian. And he is a genuinely interesting addition to the array of characters in these films because he is a character who enters as a sort of dangerous figure uh the sort of criminal charmer uh he rapidly becomes the betrayer uh and then just as quickly uh he becomes the character that leia and chewbacca cannot trust and yet they have to rely on in order to make their escape uh so i mean he is a fascinating character that honestly flattens out a little bit in return of the Jedi. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed that they didn't really play up on the fact that he had betrayed Han Solo at all in episode six that I remember. Uh, but in episode five, I mean, uh, he really does create some strong dramatic tension for the second half of the film. So, uh, I, I am a, a Lando fan more so in episode five than in episode six, but he's still, a fun character in both of those episodes. Danny, take us home. Well, I would say uh, this is one of the weird things about Star Wars is its um, ability to make stars out of minor characters. And this is the episode where Boba Fett kind of comes in. Mm -hmm. right? I figured somebody and, and, had to talk about Boba Fett. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I guess it spins off with the, the whole sort of fanboy culture. There's something about this character who barely says anything in the movie that is uh, like really compelling and, and dangerous. And he's very clever. Like he's sort of on to uh, Han's tricks when he escapes from the Empire by pretending to be garbage floating away. Um, Boba Fett follows him to Bespin and, um, and, and alerts the Empire to this thing. So you have this sort of 
almost completely silent uh, figure uh, that just kind of lurks in the background. And I, I don't know if it's the cool outfit, uh, the helmet that is that is like uh, that is like mysterious and compelling. And we don't know, is this a robot or is it a person uh, or if it's the, the kind of cunningness. But there's something like utterly sinister about this character that is uh, that that really works well with the kind of uh, ambiguity and kind of unsettledness of the landscapes that Michael was talking about earlier. And I feel like. This is, I mean, if people think about the Empire Strikes Back, one of the images is Boba Fett. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think that it's one of the kind of strange um, achievements of this, this movie that a character that does extremely little except haul, bring, bring the Empire to Han Solo and then haul his um, frozen body away uh, that it has such a like imaginative impact on, on the viewers. And so I, mm-hmm. would, uh, I, would, I would talk about him as a kind of a, a, a embodiment of fanboy engagement with this movie. Well, um, and importantly, and, he's so dangerous that even the empire doesn't like him. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we so dangerous. That, the so. empire doesn't like him and he dies very quickly and undramatically in return of the Jedi. <laughs> yeah. <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> that is like, yeah, that is, I think the fanboys part of their outrage about that movie was the way that he was just sort of unceremoniously, kind of comically pushed off in that movie so yeah mm-hmm. uh, but uh what i guess is a nice way to sort of wrap up uh next week uh michael or nope. i'm sorry nathan uh are you going to be talking about return of the jedi um, oh spoiler alert sorry <laughs> <laughs> i assumed that that was implied um Indeed. But uh, in the meantime, please uh, check out the Christian Humanist uh, endeavors on either christianhumanist.org or email the Christian Humanist at christianhumanist.org. Is that true? Is that, is that correct? Uh, the Christian Humanist at gmail.com. At gmail.com, excuse me. And you can also find the podcast on iTunes and Facebook. Uh, so please uh, take, uh, tell your friends. Uh, we're having a good time. Please uh, uh, accept my thanks for allowing me to host uh, this episode. It's been a lot of fun. And until next week, uh, I am Danny Anderson saying goodbye for Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer. Uh, Until next week, please let your sins be strong and your faith be stronger.